Well, welcome to the second of Mark Ridgeway's talks on artificial intelligence. In the first talk, he gave us a, uh, a snapshot history of the development of computing. And in that development, he told the story of how artificial intelligence uh, was the undercurrent um, of, the, of the development journey um, and it's blossomed in, with the internet. In the second half of his talk, he will move uh, still more fully onto addressing artificial intelligence. And he will still have his feet in the ground of computing, but he will be looking at the implication of what does it mean? What does the word intelligence mean? What does it mean? And I like the, the approach he's got because he's looking at the world of what does intelligence mean, not from the philosophical point of view, but from the point of view of computer scientists. And there's a there's a... A quote I want to share with you that really makes a lot of sense of this second talk um, of, uh, of Marx. And it's a quote by the remarkable philosopher Douglas Hofstadter. And it's, it's about the development of the digital world. And here it is. Each new step towards artificial intelligence, rather than producing something which everyone agrees is real intelligence, merely reveals what real intelligence is not. That is profound. In other words, we mechanize something and we say we're mechanizing intelligence. Actually, we're not. We're mechanizing what is not intelligence. And as we uh, clear the ground, as it were, more and more and more, it becomes clearer to us what real intelligence might be. And real intelligence, of course, is very mysterious. That really is this talk. He, for instance, will talk to you about you know, the great chess games, the, uh, the people from within the world of computer science who did contribute to artificial intelligence but believed it was mechanical, but believed it was not actually um, intelligence. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that uh, the, uh, the way he leads us through is, is very, very practical. Um, a couple of the points that I would draw your attention to are this. Mark does have a point of view, and his point of view is um, what he, he uses the word augmented. There's a lot of people who think um, AI, which is artificial intelligence, actually should be augmented intelligence. In other words, we're using machinery, as a, and, and Mark's words were, as a cooperative venture to help us. And by the way, um, I am the chairman of a, of a, of a, a technology company um, pioneering big data and advanced analytics. So I'm glad, I'm glad that Mark has um, assured me that uh, um, the venture is cooperative. And with that, by the way, I mean, seriously, that's how we've set the venture up as very much a cooperation between uh, the brilliance and genius of the human intuition and judgment with uh, some of the more mechanical computations that, that we don't do so well. So I think that's a really good start. But he launches off into, with his feet on the ground of computing, into some very, very important ways that Hofstadter's comment is true. And, 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 the, and the one that's probably most important um, is his, his dis brief discussion on language. Uh, that really the, the world of uh, hard, um, I forget what he calls it, it's a hard AI or extreme AI, they believe that words are sim uh, symbols. In other words, that they are uh, representations of 
uh, of thought and they are completely adequate representations of thought. That's really uh, the test, that's really the linkage that then says, so therefore with these symbols, I can create algorithms that connect them, i.e. the machine can think. It's the first step that is the arguable step and that is the, the faulty logic because what Mark talks about is uh, words just symbols, uh, mechanical representations of something in my mind um, that I can decompose and reassemble or, or do words create reality? Is there something mysterious in words that we can barely name? Um, and he, he talks about the imagination, he talks about intent um, very, very um, um, illuminating, I think, and very clear. Mark is a very, very clear presenter on a complex topic. Now he finishes with the natural place this goes to, which is what is a human being? Um, are we a machine or are we, um, he, he, he contrasts that with what he calls dualism, which is are we a machine with a soul inside it, as it were? That's what I call the cup and water view of humanity. Um, and that's very platonic. Clearly, um, as Christians, we're much more in that second camp um, than the first camp. The first camp where we've mechanized what it is to be a human being is a form of blasphemy that is, that's evil, whose effects are disastrous upon um, human beings and upon hope and upon optimism. Dualism preserves this sense of mystery and transcendence, but it has, as he will point out, the shortcoming of, of actually um, um, polarizing two, two different substances almost. And so he, he, he introduces uh, Christian physicalism, I haven't heard that phrase before, but a more integrated view of body and soul. And of course that more integrated view of body and soul is hard to, um, well, language starts to fail us because um, it's, we're talking about the integration of two things that are, that are not just two substances. Um, by the way, my metaphor, which I've searched for for years, and I'll just quickly mention it here, of this more integrated view is, um, uh, well, the, 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 the dualistic view is uh, water in a cup, you know, where the cup is our mechanical body or whatever, and the water is the soul. Um, that clearly is, I mean, it's better than just saying we're all cup, no water, but we're still left with you know, two discrete substances. It doesn't quite work. Um, I thought of a better one the other day that goes much more towards integration, which is um, imagine the seaside and the water. If you look at a, a day when it's absolutely still, absolutely still, there is nothing, uh, not a single ripple, um, versus a day when waves are coming in. You're looking at exactly the same substance, the water, but the second time there's something mysterious, very, very real, if you try and surf in it, that's going through this water. There's a tide of energy that is animating the water. And I think that's a getting closer to a more integrated metaphor where the water would be like our body and the energy that's flowing through and creating the waves is the, is the soul. Because when I look at the, the, the sea on the second day, Actually, it's, it's, it is waves, it is very real. It's waves and froth and curvature and all sorts of wonderful things. That's, that's actually there. But the form, 
didn't exist on the first day. And, and uh, that I thought was a nicer metaphor that gets closer to that more integrated view. Anyway, um, uh, this this will be this will be very educational, very helpful, and I think it's very the the view that Mark takes us to. I think is a view that's optimistic and balanced, um, and I think you'll find this very very helpful. The cognitive complexity of the issues the world faces today is more than a single person, and I think you could go on and say single entities or institutions is bigger than what they can process. Institutions, of course, get bogged down in politics. And of course, we now have what's called a broken information ecology in our contemporary world. We don't know where to go. So on the next slide, lovely picture. That's from Metropolis, by the way. Very famous movie. Let's round up what we've learned. The algorithmic digital computer has matured. It has brought great blessing, but it doesn't appear to be going anywhere. And we have lots of questions that we want answered, which current computers cannot answer. AI has come in with a very checkered history, promising much, delivering nothing for the first 30 years. And then suddenly, boom, it has paid off in unexpected ways. So as I explained at the beginning, there are two approaches that are emerging about AI. The first is what's called strong AI. It's heavily reductionistic. That is, intelligence is simply the operation of principles which are founded on more basic principles and on more basic principles and so on all the way down. And we can decompose human beings, discover those principles that make them work and just replicate them with machines. The second view is weak AI. It's dominated by people who want to solve human questions. Their solutions replicate intelligence in one way or another, but it knows it's mimicking something that it's not really, really quite understood. So I think AI is here to stay but our focus in the second half will be on strong AI. At the heart of strong AI and its claims are philosophical assumptions that we need to explore in the next 30 minutes. And we'll begin with the question of what is intelligence? Because already we've seen there is no definition. So Alan Turing, developed something called the Turing test. Now, some of you may have heard of this, so I'll just go through quickly to explain what the Turing test was. Of course, there were no computers at the time, but Turing was a visionary and he could see where it was going. And he actually thought, well, how could you tell if a thing was intelligent or not? And his test was to sit a human being down on one side of a screen or a room or whatever, blocked off, from an entity on the other side, which he could not communicate with other than by passing notes through a slot. And the conversation would go by writing notes on pieces of paper and pushing through the slot and waiting for answers to come back. And if the human being on the outside decides that the entity on the inside is another human being, 
then that entity, whether it's a human being or a machine, that entity has passed the Turing test and should be considered intelligent. So on the next uh, slide, you'll see Ava, or Ava, yes, who is the robot from the movie Ex Machina. A cyborg creation that has been tested by its creator using one of its employees. He's, he's doing a Turing test. So this employee is, has met Ava, the robot, a beautiful robot. He falls in love with her, of course, or sort of, that's not quite clear. But the purpose is to find out whether the employee will actually consider Ava the robot a human being and have a relationship with her. Of course, Ava convinces the employee to kill the creator and she kills the employee and then she runs off and hides in New York as a so-called intelligent being. Strange movie. But despite the popularity, it really doesn't stand up very well. So way back in the 80s, Graham saw uh, create the Chinese room argument to counter all of this. So he proposes a standard Turing test, except that the human is a Chinese speaker. So the human on the outside is a Chinese speaker and the conversation is in Chinese. And let's say the conversation goes backwards and forwards through the slot, the messages are being passed and let's say on the inside that there's an artificial intelligence entity that's responding. It has a program, rules and so on, and it's following all those rules. And the human being says, oh, it's human. It's intelligent. And of course, the door is opened up and we find that it's a machine. And we're supposed to say that the machine is intelligent. But Saul says, well, what happens if we put a human being in there? And we gave him the rules that the computer had. And he plays the game. And he passes messages and every message he gets in, he just looks up the instructions that the computer has. Yeah, do this. Okay. And at the end, of course, he's declared that he is intelligent. The problem is, he isn't. He's obviously not. He has no understanding of Chinese. So, so where is this understanding that we're talking about? So it seems that intelligence is something that's very hard to define. Just mimicking intelligence isn't intelligence. Uh, I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis in his commentary on Milton's Paradise Lost, and uh, he quotes uh, part of the speech where Mammon is giving a speech to the devils. And Mammon is saying, what do you mean by saying that we have lost love down here? Look, there's an excellent brothel around the corner. Everything can be imitated, then the imitation will do just as well. Is something that looks like intelligence actually intelligence? Christians might want to point people to Psalm 139, where God says, or the psalmist says, you searched me and know me, referring to God, of course, with some deeper thought. Let's look 
a bit deeper. Uh, on the next slide, you'll see a nice little puzzle. I'll talk about that. Question is, is intelligence simply data processed by formal, formal rules? That's one way of looking at intelligence. Uh, Minsky, who was uh, an artificial, one of the early artificial intelligence experts, wrote back way in the 60s that the burden of proof is on those who claim that there are processes which simply cannot be described, but which can nevertheless be carried out by minds. Just put simply, show me something that a computer cannot do that people can. Well, there are things that people can do that computers never will. Uh, back in 2019, an international group of mathematicians led by Shai Ben David, obviously it's an Israeli group, I think, uh, published a paper saying that machine learning is fundamentally restricted by the bounds of provability and therefore of Goodell's incompleteness theorems. And that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, and don't ask me to explain it in any detail. Let's put it in simple terms. Computers will be limited in their machine learning by their own limitations. Whereas people don't seem to be bounded in that way at all. But more interesting is the work of Roger Penrose, who follows a similar line. And he started writing books back in the 1980s on this subject. Uh, Roger Penrose is a mathematician and physicist, colleague of the uh, famous Stephen Hawking. And they've worked together quite a lot. And at 91, he is still going, very much like our own Edward Judge from Macquarie University. Uh, his first book back in the early 80s was The Emperor's New Mind. And here he proposes that the mind is not a calculating engine. And he then presents puzzles that people can solve, but we know that there is no algorithm which can solve it, and therefore the computers cannot solve it. So there we have it. Minds can do things that cannot be done by computers. Now, strong advocates of AI, strong AI advocates have argued the point about the claims and got very, very, very technical. So to shut them up, we have the little chess game. I think there's a little reward that Penrose has put up saying, if anyone can write an algorithm or develop a computer program to finish this game of chess, knowing full well that a computer can't, uh, he's done all the various mathematics to show that a computer, there is no algorithm to solve this. And yet, a chess player can keep the game going. He may not win, uh, if you're white that is. Um, you may not win, but I suppose if you kept on playing long enough, black might just simply fall asleep and make a mistake and you can win. But a machine never will. So here, let's consider something else. Do computers deal with data? Or information. Now data is just a set of values one two three a b c d just sets of values but information is a measure of the element of surprise or unexpectedness that data presents. In physics it's got a term in physics called entropy which is the same thing. So let's take an example I see you walking down the street 
and I race up to you and say, look, you've dropped a $5 note out of your wallet, and there it is, 100 metres back. Now, that's useful. But let's say that I'm your doctor, and you've just come to visit me and for your next appointment, and I say, oh, the test results have just arrived. You have six weeks to live. Now, that's information. In terms of data, the sentences are both the same, more or less, a few differences in words. They communicate two facts. Uh, and the first fact is that uh, you as a person have had a $5 note and there is a location. I'll give you the GPS location there. There's a bit of data again, a GPS location that will tell you where your $5 note is. The other fact is that here you are as a person and you have a thing called date of death and currently it's null, but now I'm scrubbing that out because we, it's no longer an unknown value. It's six weeks time and I'm writing it in. Uh, that's how computer sees it. But from a human point of view, there is an enormous difference in the information communicated between the two statements. Who cares about the $5 note? But the fact that I'm dying in six weeks time is big news. So there's this question, can computers work with the unexpectedness associated with information. Computers like working with Boolean data. That is data that's right or wrong. It's got true or false. Whereas information is much more bendy, wendy, stretchy. More associated with wisdom than anything else. Let's turn to some other perspectives. Hubert Dreyfus in the early 60s, wrote that the computer model turns out to be unhelpful in explaining what people actually do when they think and perceive. If you switch to the next slide, you'll see an image from the movie Arrival, which explores the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Can we experience reality just by processing symbols, which is how a computer works. And words are just symbols. As opposed to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that words actually create reality. Now, whilst that sounds bizarre, it's a, an idea that's been seriously considered. Let's face it, God spoke and reality came into being. And made, man is made in the image of God. So does man have some of that uh, reality-creating ability? If I were to use the word creativity, then we start thinking. And that moves into the power of the metaphor. How does that work? No time to go down that route, but it's a great mystery. In my early years as an analyst, we would take words and we would analyse words in order to understand reality and create things, create solutions. But that's shifted and the world today is the world of story and how computers and computer systems relate to the story of customers. Which leads to Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences natural, musical, logical, bodily, interpersonal, 
all of those things which really require embodiment. And AI, strong AI people say that this is a matter of just logical decomposition down into symbols and the symbols are processed. That's, that's a bold claim, which appears to be more of a platonic assumption more than anything else. Well, consider intelligence as executing formalised rules. So imagine a rugby star like uh, David Campisi running freely, swerving, bobbing up and down and throwing that magic pass when he knows there's someone there but he can't see him. You could break all of that down into the execution of a set of rules of physics, of, of centres of gravity and energy and power and, and mechanics. But why do AI researchers, strong AI researchers, insist that this is actually what's going on inside Campisi when he does these things? Now, now of course, it, it might be possible to simulate what Campisi does using such rules and that would be extremely complex and at this point in time uh, pro little progress has been made but even if we could do it does this prove that this is how the human body is operating well let's look at another thing intent it's a big thing in ai at the moment at this point in time there are very complex AI engines to try and determine from all the data that Google has on you as to what your motivation would be. What's, what's your next purchase going to be so that it can put the ad right in front of you? For example, you might like to buy uh, mountain climbing DVDs during winter. So Google with its artificial intelligence engines works that out fairly quickly. and during winter period, we'll show you ads of mountain, the latest mountain climbing DVDs. But that sort of selling is, is limited. What they're after is your intent. What if you could see your intent? Maybe my intent is to get fit, in which case they should be selling me a much broader range of, of DVDs. Or really, is it, is it about impressing my girlfriend or my friends? If you can work out what my intent is, then you can sell a whole lot more to me. But is intent derivable from the things we do and say? You can guess from it, but can you really ever know those deep motivations? Or is intent tied up with far more deeper things like imagination? Which really brings us to the most fundamental question that we have to face, and that is, what is, what is humanity? For the strong AI advocate, it's all about monism. That intelligence and consciousness and all of that, what it is to be human, are really just an artefact of the operation of mind and body guided by the inputs and outputs of our senses. It is a very reductionist philosophy. So if there's a rose nearby, and the rose is emitting all of those esters and those chemicals into the air, and I come past, 
then I have sensors in my nose which picks up these sense, uh, these esters and the nose picks up, oh, there's a little bit of that ester and a little bit of that ester and this, this relationship between this combination. Hmm. And that information gets fed up to the brain and my brain sort of says, hmm, we've seen this before. And it looks up its computer banks and says, right, that's the smell of a rose. And by the way, in comparing with other things, roses have had pleasant experiences for me. I should feel joyful. So in that case, I will send out some joyful hormones into my body, endorphins or whatever, and there it is. That is the process of smelling a rose. Now, of course, one day we perhaps could duplicate all of these bits and pieces and understand them fully. But does putting all of these bits and pieces together with a machine to do the smelling and a bit to send out the endorphins into the body and all the hormones to make us feel joy. Does this actually replicate what is going on? Strong AI people say, yes, this is exactly what's going on because this is how the world is. In response to that is dualism, where the essence of being human, the very deep essence of being human, sits outside the physical world, what we call a traditional soul. Now that sounds very platonic, and the traditional church has said, well, we're not platonic, it's just that Plato happened to get it right. But contemporary world, dualism is in a difficult place. The line between the physical and this other world is constantly shifting. Today, the process of smelling a rose, from a dualist point of view, would follow the monist path up until a arbitrary point at which we would draw a line and say, from here on in, it's in another world. Or at least, cooperate with another world. How the soul connects to the body and where the dividing line lies remains a great mystery. And certainly over the last 50 years, that line has shifted significantly. However, dualism as a system completely invalidates strong AI because you just cannot look into this other world. Now, there's a third alternative that's uh, popped up recently. It's called Christian physicalism. Uh, it's a view that monism is actually correct, but incomplete. So it rejects the reductionism of monism, but it also rejects the Platonism of dualism. And it starts with the claim that the Bible does not directly lend any support to the existence of a soul as we currently understand it, and, and nor do the early creeds. <laughs> that may surprise you, but uh, open up the scriptures and read it, and you will see that that's true. Uh, now, Nancy Murphy and Joel Green are probably the only real writers in this space at the moment. Uh, and there are a number of emergent scholars like uh, Brian McLaren, 
who have uh, jumped on board. But they see dualism as a dead end, given the lack of biblical testimony and the emerging res results of science pushing the traditional soul further and further and further into the background. So if you turn to Genesis 1, where God makes man in his own image, there is something special about man. But he is, man is created in this world. And our ultimate destiny is also in this world. And Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what we are. Do we need to add anything else? That's an interesting question to raise. So as far as artificial intelligence or strong AI is concerned, monists say that eventually we expect to replicate the engineering of the body, and when we do that, it will be human and conscious. Dualists just simply deny the thing. You cannot work in the heavenly world, so you cannot duplicate a human being. And Christian physicalists point out that there is a lot more going on than we imagine. And current understandings are dead end because we know that the universe in which you live is far more mysterious than we could ever imagine. So for Christian physicalists, what is man? He is fearfully and wonderfully made. I want to wrap up on the last second last slide with the question, should we fear artificial intelligence? And really, we just got to split the question because weak artificial intelligence um, is not necessarily dangerous, but it can be. The fear that big data will be used for capitalist gain and destroy our privacy. These are all real, real and valid fears. And I think we need to be on the alert for these. But in the long run, with the potential, it's something that we need to pursue. As for strong AI, I'll let uh, Dr. David Belinsky uh, make uh, the most appropriate comment. I'm quoting from him here. The progress of science has met progressively a disenchantment with nature and a form of cultural humiliation, whereby at every step in the development of the sciences, human beings and their works have been demoted from a central position and reduced to the margins. Uh, my reading of that is the real danger of strong AI is that it has the danger of bringing people down to the level of machines. We may end up devaluing, devaluing those aspects of human intelligence that we hold dear, such as imagination, aesthetics, altruism, creativity, wisdom, and even love. Uh, artificial intelligence used by governments that would flow into public policies that devalue the human person, that would be catastrophic. I want to finish off with just talking about Brazil's most enduring song. It's on the final slide. And there's a link there if you want to look it up on YouTube. And there's many YouTube versions of this song. It's called The Waters of March, or Aqua de Marca. Uh, 
I find the Susanna McCorkle version the, the best to watch on YouTube, but you can look it up and enjoy it. But just listen to the words of the song. A stick, a stone, the end of the road, the rest of a stump, a lonesome road, a sliver of glass, a life, the sun, a knife, a death, the end of the run, and the riverbank talks of the waters of March. It's the end of all strain, it's the joy in your heart. It's a crazy song, but it has intent. Its intent is to take you to Rio de Janeiro during March, the miserable month. The festivals have ended, the rains have come, and the mud appears everywhere. And whilst that may not sound like a deep philosophical uh, purpose for a song, it's actually quite meaningful. It's about everyday living. It has a very profound intelligence that defies explanation. There's no logic or no sense in the words, no, no flow of argument. All of those things, they're the things that strong AI people are researching and trying to find where intelligence is. And you won't find it in this song. But I'm sure if you listen to the song, you know that it works. And at this point in time, we don't really know why. There is a sense that your body can feel it. It's just not just a brain thing. It's a celebration of that thing that we call humanity. Something I don't think machines can ever enjoy. <laughs>